0: This book in front of me, Obadiah, which I'm telling you is some serious stuff. I'm warning you ahead of time. And, and I may preach through this and you're going to say, well, that was no big deal. What was the big deal? But I'm telling you, this, this book, Obadiah, is, is very serious. Historians aren't even 100% sure when Obadiah lived because there's a couple guys in the Bible named Obadiah that show up. And, and there was an invasion of Judah by the the Philistines and the Arabians in the mid-9th century BC, which would have been basically uh, concurrent with Elijah and Elisha. And you read in the Bible of a man named Obadiah in 1 Kings who comes and talks to Elijah. And it's, it's not impossible that that's the Obadiah that is being referred to because you'll see that the context of the book is that he um, uh, is, is preaching at a time when Israel has just been attacked and somewhat defeated and captives have been taken. I, not because of any special scholarship or any special insight, but just my own inclination is to place Obadiah later than that, as many historians and theologians do, by the way. That's not my own thing. Um, much later, to the sixth century B.C., when the Babylonians came along, and uh, completely sacked uh, Jerusalem. And uh, in either case, it's not critical to to be able to place exactly where in history it was to understand the lessons of this book. Israel has just suffered attack and defeat at the hands of an enemy, and a people by the name of the Edomites stood by and laughed, basically. Their hearts were filled with pride. The pride caused them to rejoice over the suffering and the downfall of their enemy. Listen, God didn't like that. And so God raised up Obadiah and he sent Obadiah to tell the Edomites, my people, yeah, they're, they're struggling. Yeah, my people are down right now. Yeah, my people are going through a hard thing right now and they deserve it and I'm dealing with it. I'm taking care of it. But you sat there and sneered at them and you sat there and you laughed at them. I'm going to utterly wipe you out. That's not a very heartwarming message for the morning that we're having the Thanksgiving dinner later, Right? But you know what? Listen. This is God. His character. His justice. His justice. His mercy. His mercy, yes. His mercy that he would be merciful and compassionate. That he would feel and act on empathy that he has towards a nation that he's judging. Israel. And on their behalf defend them, even though he's in the process of causing them to be judged. You see a good father who's disciplining his own children and yet defending them at the same time from those who would stand by and laugh and say, yeah, yeah, he's finally getting what he deserves. Yeah. God said, oh, no. Oh, no. That's what Obadiah is. Obadiah is also important because there's a very clever play on words. The name Edom sounds like what other famous name in the Bible a little bit. Who said that? Great. Edom, Adam. There's like one... Vowel sound different. And Edom is a name that basically means red. Nothing fancy about that. But it sounds very much like Adam, which basically means man or mankind. The first man that was created was named Adam, a man. Right? And what you'll see in the middle of this text, listen up, is that while God is speaking to Edom, he then turns and speaks to Adam. Get it? He warns Edom, and then he says, and the rest of the world needs to hear this too. So so close are the words that I pointed out to you last week that in our study of Amos, in Amos, in the translation of Amos chapter 9, you see the word Edom, But when James quotes from Amos chapter 9 in the New Testament account in Acts chapter 15, he says, mankind, which is Adam, not Edom, that's how close they are, right? And they become like interchangeable. One becomes a picture for the other. And you know what? You may not be an Edomite, but you are an Adamite, as we all are. Right? And so we need to take heed and be warned by what God says to Edom and Adam in this book. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are thankful, Lord God, for your word, which is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword it gives life your word will stand forever your word is that which helps us to specifically understand you as you have revealed yourself in the beauty of your creation your word explains us to ourselves your word explains you your word explains your salvation and your grace and your mercy Your word explains your justice and your righteousness and your holiness. And Lord, my prayer is that as we read the words of this old prophet, the shortest book in the Old Testament, we pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to learn and to understand today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read it. Ready? It's only 21 verses long. Breaks up into five neat little sections to study and to consider. Listen to this. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O T-men, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For the violence against your brother Jacob "'Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. "'In the day that you stood on the other side, "'in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, "'when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, "'even you were as one of them. "'But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, "'in the day of his captivity, "'nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah "'in the day of their destruction.' nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Here's where it gets really interesting. For the day of the Lord upon all nations, Adam. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink Continually, Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, the one that they were glorying over in their calamity, but on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Them's fightin' words. Well, it's more than that. It's okay to chuckle a little bit, but really this is, this is heavy because, because I think it speaks to one of the perhaps most natural but basest characteristics of men. And that is the inclination and capacity to rejoice in the downfall of others. To smile when someone else grieves. To feel a sense of self-satisfaction because somebody else is down. To... Allow ourselves to feel better because, by comparison, we seem to be so much better off than what's happening to them over there. So, there's a specific historic context, of course, that needs to be understood. But the prophet himself, the Lord, through the prophet, expands the audience to the nations. And so, we have this thing revealed this lesson that we can learn both history and future as well as personal application from. And granted, as I said, it's a hard lesson because it's not... I mean, we would love to just stand and talk about how much God loves us and what he did for us through Jesus. And, and we've done quite a bit of that through our songs and our prayers, and, and we will today as well. But, but you have to understand that these books of the minor prophets. They contain things that haven't been fulfilled yet. They're still in play, if you want to view it that way, which is true of the whole Bible, but, but especially here. Obadiah is a great book because it cuts right to it, right? Let's just start, so let's us do that. Let's get right to it. Because, you know, I've got to finish the whole book in, in one day, so... So let's get right at it. The vision of Obadiah. We already talked about like, maybe a, a tiny bit of lack of clarity of exactly who he is and when he lived. Certainly it would seem that because of the familiarity with Mount Zion and Jerusalem that he was of the southern kingdom. Um, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. I, I I said almost everything there was to say, I think, at this point, that's relevant for today, about Edom, except one thing. And, of course, it came up when you got to verse 6 and you read the name Esau. And you know that, and you know that Esau is uh, the ancestor of this nation. Esau's name was changed to Edom much in the same way that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Yes, exactly. So what do you have? You have these two guys who are brothers. Their dad is who? Yes. And who's Isaac's dad? Yes, sir. Very good. That's right. So we pray all the time to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here's Abraham, Isaac, and Esau and Israel. Right? Abraham, Isaac. And really, according to the order that those two brothers were born, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Esau's the firstborn. But then you're told the story in those chapters in Genesis about how Jacob and Esau... Jacob was um, the, the more clever of them, you might say, but Esau was a wicked guy. The Bible doesn't say this about too many people, but the Bible says about Esau that God hates him. That's pretty bad. An individual, Esau, my soul, hated, the Lord said, right? And the Lord hated him because for among other things, he despised his birthright. That was something that was sacred because when God created the heavens and the earth and established social order, God established that a man would marry his wife and there was order within that relationship because the marriage was to reflect the Garden of Eden, right? When God created Adam and there was no suitable helper for him and so he created Eve and Eve became the compatible, perfectly compatible helper for Adam, and there was an order there, and then they had their children, and their children were even codified into the law to honor their father and their mother and Societies are held together by that other things too, but that 's one of the, the the bedrocks of a solid society is that there 's order within the husband and the wife, the father and the mother, and then within the the children, and the relationship. And so here comes Esau, the firstborn of Isaac. And we know that he despised his birthright because what? Because he sold it. <laughs> he sold it because he was hungry. And the, uh, this red stew, which goes right hand in hand with his name, which means red, um, is, is traded. And, and the Bible tells us he despised his birthright. And God can see that there's a wicked heart right there. And so guess what? When Isaac is about to die, mom Concocts this plan, deck disguises him as his brother. His dad can't really see that well. Goes in, Isaac lays the blessing on Jacob, and the rest is history. Well, not quite. There's this. The animosity and the controversy and the conflict and the rivalry between Esau and Jacob becomes very serious enmity between Edom and Israel. And that continues to be played out, if my timing, if my inclination concerning the timing of this is right, all the way to the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, where Edom stands by and says, yea, and even helps it along in the day of their calamity. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, Obadiah writes. And then there's a a parenthetical statement, which right away kind of gives you the purpose for the whole book. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us rise up against her for battle. So in other words, Obadiah, right from the beginning, says that we've heard this report, and this is what we're bringing to you, God is going to raise up, what? People to come to fight against you. You're going to be destroyed. So get ready. Verse 2. And here we come now into verse 2, and we come to what is at the heart of all of this. What would be at the heart of not just one nation glorying in the downfall of another, but cousins, basically, right? Many, 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 Generations countless times removed, but peoples that can trace their lineage to the same father and grandfather. And what a father and grandfather they were. Abraham and Isaac. People who shared a border. What is it in the hearts of the people of a nation that would find it within themselves to glory in the downfall of another when they are so intertwined with one another in their histories? That was the correct answer, by the way. The same question can be asked about you and I as an individual. What is it in us? What is the thing? What is the thing that each one of us must guard against that would cause us to find some sadistic joy or entertainment or sense of achievement or self-satisfaction or peace or whatever in the downfall of somebody else. Let's read and have the answer. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride is where the Bible starts, right? We know from reading a later account of Lucifer that he rose up in pride, and that's what caused the rebellion that caused the serpent to challenge Eve and led to the first sin and led to all this mess. Right from the beginning, right from all that, there was pride at the heart of it. You go all the way to the end of the Bible, and you read all the way through all the accounts of everything. You read through the story of Jesus. You read through the book of Acts. You read through all the epistles. You get to the very, the very, very latest of all of the epistles, the ones that were written by the apostle John. Jerusalem is gone. The church has begun to spread. And and, and and we're in like almost now into the second century A.D. Uh, and John is writing, and he writes this letter. He writes about a guy named Diotrephes. And I won't take the time to turn there. But we're told about Diotrophies, And diatrophies is in a church like ours. But diotrophies won't let anyone else do anything. Missionaries want to come in and talk. Nope, not going to listen. These people want to do this. These people want. No, Diotrophies won't let them. Why? Because he wanted what? Anyone know it? Pre. Oh, very good. See, you guys are in good hands next week. You have a man who knows his Bible getting up here to talk to you. The uh, Diotrophies wanted the preeminence. And so all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way to what is perhaps the last of the letters in the Bible that are written to a church, to a church, to a church, you find pride. And here it is at work here. You are proud. Pride is that sense of self, there is a good way that pride is used. You know, my son came home. He always got to get a Jonathan story when he comes back. So my son comes home, and and he actually got up in the praise band practice this morning to play the drums. And I didn't know what to expect because he's been gone for six weeks. And he starts playing. It's like, in between, what I I I I actually was thinking to myself, he must be playing drums down at that school, right? You know, because he's playing, he's playing clearly, he's playing accurately. And I'm, I'm feeling what I think is like a good sense of pride because I'm, I'm happy about something my son so asked, When's the last time you played? And he said, Oh, when I was here six weeks ago. It's like, How can you possibly play like that if you haven't touched a drumstick in six weeks? I was like, I've, I felt good. About it. It's a good feeling, and it comes with that. That's like, that's like sort of the innocuous way that we use the word pride. That's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is a a a, a wall. Solid, concrete barrier, hardness in your heart that places you on the throne of everything that pertains to you in existence. That's a really weird definition, but, but, that's, but that's what it is. Pride is this, it's like the opposite of humility. Pride is like this self-satisfaction, self-exaltation, self-glorying, this need for preeminence like Diotrephes. That's in 3 John, by the way, if you want to read it. Um, Pride is, it's interesting. If you, you would think that if you, like, Googled or used a concordance and looked up the word pride, that you'd find it all over the Bible because it's such a big deal. And you don't. The word itself, pride, and, and the companion adjective, proud, and, and, and words that are like it, like haughty and things like this, they, they actually appear less in the Bible than you might think. I mean, there's still plenty of references to it. But, but one of the biggest books in the Bible, oh, here we go, now we have a good quiz. One of the biggest books in the Bible that warns about pride is, what do you think? Who who said that? Right on it, very good. There you go, got some smart people here. Maybe maybe you'll preach the week after Bob. No 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 no, no no. Sorry. <laughs> Listen, pride. Proverbs. You know what the book of Proverbs is? Proverbs is a book of that is less theological and more practical, right? So so Proverbs zones in on how pride can really mess up your life, like it did the Edomites, right? And and got them wiped out. Pride got the Edomites positioned in the crosshairs of a just and powerful God and got them wiped out. Want to read a few verses about pride from the book of Proverbs? Shake your head, yes. Turn turn to Proverbs chapter 8. And there's more to it than just these few verses that I've come up with here. I found this verse to be so telling, Proverbs 8.23. No, 8.13, I'm sorry. I found this verse to be so telling that uh, I actually printed it inside the cover of your bulletins today, for those that look at that. Uh, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I Hate. Now, the I, the first thing you need to know, Proverbs being a book about practical living, and practical instructions, the I in that verse, I hate, is not God. Right? Um, the I in that verse is actually wisdom personified. Proverbs employs that, that uh, uh, writing find a better word than that, that writing device where you would personify something to like give it the qualities of being alive. And Proverbs chapter 8 is all about wisdom and the glory of wisdom and the power of wisdom. And so it's as if wisdom were speaking. And what it says is, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, first, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is a phrase that comes up a lot in the Bible Um, even in the times of the New Testament, you read about Gentiles who feared God. The fear of the Lord, the book of Proverbs basically starts off with it by saying, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point of knowing anything is the fear of the Lord. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, we look at it and we want to kind of define the word fear. It means to respect. It means to tremble in awe. And all that's true. But the important thing I think to understand about the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is that it is an Old Testament device that is basically synonymous with faith. To fear the Lord, what it means more than anything is that you believe who He is, you believe what He said, you believe everything about Him, and you tremble in awe. That's what it means to fear the Lord, right? So it's speaking of believers. So real faith, verse 13, real faith in God is to hate evil. When people love evil, when people embrace evil, when people are entertained by evil and say they believe in God, I doubt it. Or they say they love God. Now, maybe it's something you struggle with. That's different. You're humble and you battle and you struggle. But loving and embracing things which are evil does not go hand in hand with saying I love God. Because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then there are some examples of evil given. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, which basically just means living your life for the sake of evil, and the perverse mouth. So there's four things that are listed there, right? Pride, which is in the heart. Arrogance, which is in the heart. The evil way, which is how you live, and the perverse mouth, which is what you say. And the perverse means crooked. The crooked mouth could be a liar. The crooked mouth could be a slanderer. The crooked crooked mouth could be an obscene person. There's all kinds of different ways that a mouth could be crooked. A deceiver, really, is the idea. They're they're twisted. They're crooked. They're trying to deceive with their words. Notice first on the list is pride. Right? Fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride is... Arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth, I wisdom, hate. Right? In other words, you are most unwise. You are you are bucking what wisdom is trying to grow you up to be if you are an embracer of those things. Pride, arrogance, and the evil way. Pride does not fit. Pride is completely incompatible with someone who says, I have faith in the Lord, I believe in the Lord. Because you know what? The person who really knows the Lord, the person who really knows the Lord, where are they? They're in the place of humility. Because God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble, which Proverbs also says, by the way. Turn to uh, chapter 13 and verse 10 in Proverbs. Just a few quick ones to read here. By pride comes nothing but strife. Isn't that the truth? When people are full of themselves, they use their faculties, they use their resources, they use their intellect, they use their mouths, they use their time to cause trouble. By pride comes nothing but strife. The examples I gave you one was Satan in the Garden of Eden. Strife? Yeah, I'd say so. God kicks everybody out and closes the gate, right? I mean, yeah, strife. Strife between God and man resulted from that pride. Diotrephes? Pride caused strife? Yeah, John writes a letter and says, when I get there, I'm going to straighten them out. So, so there you had like, in, you started in infighting in the Garden of Eden and you ended in infighting in the church, but all of it was rooted and sourced in pride. That's what pride does. It stirs up strife. Nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Wisdom with the well-advised. All right, go to chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's probably pretty easy to understand, but the second half of that verse is particularly telling. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. So, even when the proud bring themselves together in alliance, they will still reap the reward of pride, which is destruction in some time. Which is what happened to Edom, as when we go back there and we go through it more, you'll see. All right? One more. No, two more. Same chapter. Look at verse 18. Now, 18 is well-known, 19 is less well-known, but 19 is also very profound. They go together, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty, that's another word that basically means proud, a haughty spirit before a fall. Right? There you go. One precedes the other. Better, verse 19, remember, it's a book of practical wisdom. So it's not just telling you pride bad. It's telling you what to do instead. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide spoil with the proud. Listen, sometimes with the proud and their devices and their, their abilities to do whatever it is that they do, sometimes there is a desire to go along with that because they perceive, are perceived to be successful. You're much better off hanging out with the lowly and the humble in spirit. Because those are the ones who experience the grace of God than you are with running with the proud. One more. Chapter 28, verse 25. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but you get the good on the opposite. But he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Right? Read it again. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. A lot of these statements that come in the book of Proverbs, they're comparisons between two things. And what you see here being contrasted is what? The person with the proud heart and the person what? Who trusts in the Lord. What does that mean? That means that those two things are completely incompatible. Like, a person who is proud in their heart is not a person who trusts in the Lord. See how that works? Because they're being compared. They're being compared as separate things. It's not he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but when he trusts in the Lord, he'll be prospered. No, it's comparing them as if they're two completely separate things, not characteristics of the same person. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Watch for pride. I mean, look, I read all these verses to you, and maybe I didn't even need to, but I mean, it is why we're here. But look, you know, this is what resulted in Edom doing what Edom did, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Guard against pride in all of its forms. Guard against pride. Watch yourself. You know what the best talisman against a proud heart is? You might be surprised at how basic and easy this is. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There, uh, look it. Now we've come home for the Christian to what should be the most practical, useful thing maybe that you'll hear about this whole sermon We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. If you want to avoid pride, which you should because it leads to destruction, it stirs up strife, and God thinks it's an abomination. Pretty good reason, pretty compelling case for wanting to not be Listen, you want to avoid, the way you do that is you keep your eyes on the one who, though he was God and was equal and didn't consider it robbery to be equal of God, he took on the form of a lowly and humble servant and came and 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 was punished, and and was treated, mistreated, and he died for our sins, he was a scourge, he suffered not just death, but the shameful death of the cross. Listen, the, the great example of humility is Jesus. So you keep your eyes on Jesus. And if the person wants to be one who's with Jesus, they need to walk as he walked. And so you read, and you study, and you think, and you listen, and you pray, and you keep your heart fixed on Jesus. It, is, it, it cannot fail. He will not fail you. If you desire to, guide against, to guard against the pride of the heart that leads to so much mayhem in the lives of people, Get fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will what? They'll go strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace, says the hymn writer. Turn to Jesus all the time. Listen, so much of what we battle with and we struggle with in conflicts in this life is the result of the pride of the heart. And the pride of the heart manifests and takes over and controls our actions when our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus' grace is completely sufficient to cover your sins. If you are in Christ, you have no worry about sin and death and, and any of that anymore. E- even you battle, you struggle, you fall. The, even the righteous man may fall 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 100 times, a 1, times. 1,000 times. The Lord's grace is greater than it all, and the Lord will raise you up, right? So the Lord the Lord Jesus died for our sins, and we have no concern, no worry about the penalty, the eternal consequence for our sin ever, ever again because of what Jesus did, right? Amen? Amen. Now, now take that and look at Him every day. Look at Him every moment. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your thoughts on him. Keep him in focus. And you know what? It will guard your heart against pride. Go back to Obadiah. Behold, I will make among you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. These words here, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. What Obadiah is doing there is he's using the physical land where the Edomites lived to describe the state of their hearts. Very clever, right? Um, The Edomites lived in land that is today part of the modern state of Israel on the west and the modern state of Jordan on the east. But the lands were to the south of Judah in the ancient times and they lived on what was very high ground, and their cities and their towns were in, among mountains and very high places, and they dug into those rocks, and that was, that was their land. They were a mountain people, all right, the Edomites. And so Obadiah draws upon that and says, uh, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock whose habitation, or where you live, is high, and you say in your heart, who's going to bring me down to the ground? They had a great, they had a great like, sense of security because of where they lived. And then Obadiah says, the Lord through Obadiah says, hey, listen, you live up high. I don't care. You can ascend as high as the eagle. Fly up into the sky if you want. Though you set your nest among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. Who is the chopper down of the proud? It's God. It's God himself. And their time had come. You, you, you who dwell in the rocks, listen, make your dwelling as high as the eagle. Make your dwelling as high as the stars. I don't care. I'm coming for you, says the Lord, and I will bring you down. From there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, verse 5, I planned on spending, I'm still going to make this, I think, because I planned on spending a big chunk of time talking about pride. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. And the and and you have to stop there because you see in the English language, too, the hyphen before the statement, oh, how you will be cut off, and after the statement. It's just like this. Yeah, sometimes when you talk, you're like this. You're talking, you're saying something, you interrupt yourself. Man, this is really something, isn't it? And then you go back to what you said. That's what this, that's what this, it's just an interjection. It's a phrase that's inserted to show the the, the magnitude of what it is that speaks If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. And then he gets back on it. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? In other words, this judgment that's going to come, it's going to take away everything and leave nothing but maybe a few scraps. Edom was going to be completely taken away. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. Right? So the whole nation was going to be taken away by the Lord. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. In other words, even your own allies are going to double-cross you and are going to betray you and turn on you, Edom. The men at peace with you, you think they're your friends? Watch what they're going to do, because, because God is sovereign, right? And God is sovereign, and God controls even the heart of kings to turn it this way or to turn it that way. And so God was going to turn these nations who were part of this alliance with Edom fighting against Israel and was going to turn them against Edom because of what Edom had done. That's God's sovereign power to do that. Something we should remember about God. Holds the heart of the king in his hand, turns it to the left, turns it to the right, whatever he wishes to do. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. You have no idea. You're just going along day by day by day. You think everything's good. Even the people you sit down and eat with are going to turn on you. Eat them. Eat them. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Right? So... From great to small, from wise to humble, everyone in the land was going to be destroyed. This passage, verses 5 through 9, basically it's very simple. It describes the extent to which the destruction was going to come. Then your mighty men, O Teman. Teman was one of the sons of Esau, and one of the regions of the country was known by that name. So it's kind of like calling Israel Ephraim or calling a portion of it Judah. It was a part of, the, part of the, one of the regions was known as Teman. Where are then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. That basically boils it down. That's the totality of the destruction that was coming. Now, so that's the second section. The first section described the pride that was at the heart of it. The second section described the extent to which God was going to destroy Edom, which was complete and total. You see that, right? And now, the third section, starting in verse 10, here's why. We already know that we know that at the heart, at the heart was pride. But then how did that pride manifest itself? God is just. God's not just going to come and say, "You're proud. I'm going to destroy you." No. You're proud, and it's caused you to do this. Here's what they, these are the specific charges. And there's a bunch of things listed in this section from verses 12, uh, verse 10 through 14. Let's just list them off. For violence against your brother, Jacob. Emphasis on the word brother, right? They had turned against people who, in their ancestry, as we said before, were relatives. That matters so much to the Lord. In Amos, when we studied through Amos, that was one of the things that was brought up. It was brought up in Hosea as well, uh, as one of the judgments against the northern tribes was that they would sell their own people into slavery for the sake of becoming rich in their, in their land. For violent, and, and these aren't brothers in the sense that they're all Israelites together, but they're cousins from antiquity. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now, ready? In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. In other words, in the day, you're, you're, you're their brothers, you're their neighbors. God speaks of neighbors as being put there for the good of one another elsewhere in the scripture. They're neighbors and in the day that their captivity came, in the day that their destroyers came, what were they? Were they just kind of quiet and tried to like help the Jews who were trying to escape the trouble that was coming? No. They joined forces with those who were trying to destroy their own brothers. You were like one of them. God was not pleased with that. What else? But you should not have gazed And the idea of gazed is that they looked on them with satisfaction. They saw the trouble they were going through and they were like, yep, now what? You know what I mean? They were gazing on them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah. This is what God is really, this is what their pride, back in the beginning of the book, has manifested itself as. Their pride has manifested itself as they were happy that their neighbor, that their ancient brethren, that this other nation was going down. They rejoiced. And that was a manifestation of pride and of the wickedness of the heart of men, and God was not pleased. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in their day of calamity. Entered the gate. What does that mean? That means they were actually part of it. It was more than just they were standing aside and looking. They actually came in and were part of the plunder. They came in and they were part of the destruction. They came in and they were part of the looting. They participated. You shouldn't have come in. God tells them. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. Just mob-looting. And they participated in it. Because of pride. Their pride caused them to think, these people really deserve this and so Whatever I may say about them or do to them, they deserve it. And that's what pride does. No, what? Mercy. No mercy. No pity. No sympathy. No empathy was happening to these people. You see, it was for God to determine who deserved what. Not them. There's a lesson in that for us. It was for God to judge them, and God was judging them. If it's the time of the Babylonians, God was judging them by bringing Nebuchadnezzar and his father earlier than that into the country to judge them, but that was for God to do, not for them to stand by and snicker and actually even come in and participate in the looting. Should they not have mourned? should they not have grieved? Should they not have prayed? Should they not have pitied? Should we not mourn? Should we not silence our mouths and tear our own hearts in the day of the calamity of a brother who may be in sin? And yet, we ourselves in pride should not look upon them as somehow just getting what they deserve? Should we not be more humble than that? Which looks more like Jesus? Humility and grace and mercy? Or self-righteousness and self-satisfaction and self-justice? Which looks more like Jesus? Jesus? You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. You know what this is? These are refugees. There are a lot of political things that get said in the modern world about refugees and such. And before you even go there with your mind, stop. This has nothing to do with most of the things that are talked about in the modern world today. This is a nation that is being completely and absolutely ravaged and destroyed, not by internal strife, not by civil war, not by poverty, by an invading nation, is tearing down stone upon stone and killing child upon child. And they're fleeing for their lives and their neighbors, and not just neighbors, Their relatives from antiquity are doing what? They're cutting them off. And what does it say? Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Hey, Babylonian guy. I've got a Jew here who's trying to escape. Have at it. That's what they were doing. They weren't having a discussion about borders or laws or anything like that, so don't go there in your mind. They were actually capturing people who were fleeing for their lives and handing them over to the people who were killing them. And they were brethren, and they were neighbors. And God noticed. Those are the charges. Now, verses 15, we're right on pace here. This is great. Verses 15 and 16. Ready? Here's where the book gets so... In- I, I think the book's interesting already. I don't know about you. I think it's pretty interesting. Already. But here's where it's really interesting. Because here's, here's where for a minute he stops talking to Edom and starts talking to Adam. That's you and me. The descendants of Adam. And by the way, the word Adam is not literally used there. But in, in, in concept, that's what he's doing. For the day of the Lord upon Edom is near. Oh no, that's not what it says. In verse 15, what does it say? For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. See how it brought, see how deliberately the charges and the future and the prophecy and the judgment and the evaluation, see how it immediately broadens beyond Edom to Adam. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. And so he says to all, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. There are two important applications to make from that. One, I think, is a very specific social one. And that is that The Jewish people, specifically, who are the sufferers here, have down through the nations been spread among the nations of the Gentiles and have suffered and have suffered and have suffered. Some of that is by the divine hand of God in bringing judgment, chastisement. But some of it, a lot of it, is just by the evil and the wickedness of men. And God's not happy with it. I really believe when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you, we need to take that pretty seriously when it comes to Jewish people that we know. Uh, there have been times throughout history where the Jews have been horribly mistreated. You still see little ramifications of it today, even in our own country just recently, right? Guy walks into a synagogue because he's decided that Jews must die. He hates the president, and I guess the president put an embassy in Jerusalem, and so the guy decided, nope. He walks to a synagogue and pulls the trigger. How many people died? Almost 20? He was in the teens, right? Listen, here's what needs to be said. The day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Now, that's one way to understand this. But another way to understand this is to take the principle and apply it to yourself. Not just with regards to Jews, but with regards to anybody who might be in the place that the Jews are in in the times of Obadiah. We must be a people As individuals and as a church, listen, 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 listen. We must be a people who, as individuals and as a church, are characterized by grace and mercy and humility and love and patience. God's on his throne, God's in control, God is powerful, God is sovereign, God's not surprised by anything. Some of these sound like cliches, but they're true. There's no place for us to rise up in pride and insert our own will and our own evil desires into situations. Be humble. Step back. Be gracious. Pray. Forgive. Suffer long. This is the way of the Lord, is it not? This is what Edom did not do. This is what Adam does not do. But this is what we must do. Don't rejoice in the calamity of another. Pray. Be patient. Wait. Be silent. Pray and wait on a God who is sovereign and powerful and able to do anything. The day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. This verse 16. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. In other words, the idea is just as Edom, who lived in the mountainous region of the Holy Land, Just as Edom was going to suffer God's justice, so all the nations shall drink continually. In other words, what Obadiah is saying is, what Edom's about to get, Adam is going to get. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. I don't have time for time's sake. But look, you want to write a few references down that you want to go home and study for yourself just to see where all this among the nations is going. Ready? Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Revelation 22, verses 12 through 17. You know what? Go home and read those and see where the nations are headed. And understand that we, the church, have been called by the grace and the love and the power of God out of the nations to be separate unto Him. I'll leave that at that. Verse 17. This is the last section, and it basically describes two futures. Hey, listen. At the time Obadiah wrote, the the people with the upper hand were the Edomites and the people down on the bottom were the Jews. This passage describes the complete reversal of that in the future. And this part of this has not yet been fully fulfilled. Fulfilled. which I realize now is a redundancy, but you understand what I mean. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. What's Mount Zion? Yeah, you, guys are, you guys are on, man. You guys know your, your Bible references. You must have a really good teacher. No, 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 no. That was, that was a joke. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance, and there shall be Holiness. Here's what's coming to Jerusalem. You look at Jerusalem now and you look at the calamity and you smile. Let me tell you what's coming to Jerusalem. Deliverance, holiness. They're going to possess all of their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be like a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. Joseph, one of the descendants of, of Jacob uh, 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 over, over their tribes, over tribes that were in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, Esau and Manasseh, right? And, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. And it was the complete opposite at the time that he wrote. Right? The house of Esau was gloating in their pride, and the house of Jacob were even having their people who were running to escape being turned over to be executed. But that was going to be completely reversed. God was going to, in the future, deliver Jerusalem. There was going to be a place of holiness. Hey, when's that going to happen? You already see that there's a nation of Israel there today, but I hardly think the modern state is a place of holiness, a place of complete fullness. You know what's going to happen? When Messiah returns. And that's coming. Listen, Messiah came and He died to redeem, to bring us His grace, to bring us God's love, to bring us salvation. He rose from the dead. Put your faith in Him. Put your trust in Him. He is the only hope of forgiveness and everlasting life. He ascended back to heaven. He is there now. He is coming again one day and when He comes, Mount Zion will be delivered. There's going to be holiness. The, the, the nation is going to be restored. They will be as a fire. They will be as a flame. Where is Esau going to be? stubble, they shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivors shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. You see this in verse 19? The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. That's actually something that exists in the world today. What were the ancient mountainous regions of Esau's land are currently today the possessions of the modern state of Israel. Listen, go, look, look, look. People doubt the Bible. People, listen. This is miraculous. I can't emphasize this enough for you. You need to understand that at the, at the, the event that Obadiah is prophesying in context with is the destruction of, um, uh, the, the temple. It was rebuilt up eventually, never to its full glory. Then, then some six centuries later, the Romans completely wiped out Jerusalem after Jesus had gone back to heaven. And from that point, 70 AD, all the way up until the 20th century, nothing. Nothing. And now, popped up into existence in the middle of the 20th century, out of one of the greatest periods of suffering, the Holocaust that the Jewish people ever experienced, there's a Jewish state, the modern nation of Israel, and guess what? They possess the mountains of Esau. It's, the word of, it's, it's like you're reading the newspaper when you open your Bible. It ought to make you want to pay attention to the rest of the Bible. This is like a chilling book. You know, it's like a goosebump providing book. You know, when you really read it and you think about what it's, it's showing us here. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. The lowland shall possess Philistia. Also true, part of the modern state. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, which had been lost in the ancient times to the Assyrians. Sorry about that. And then to the Babylonians. But that's back. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. That's back. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, which is in the extreme north of the nation. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad. And that that verse is not is, that word is not specifically tied with anything. You read commentaries, like in study Bibles, that say maybe it's Spain, maybe it's... Maybe it's but the idea is that, that Jews from extremely far away lands of the world are going to be gathered back. Because That's happening now. This is starting to come to pass now. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, that is, to lead and rule over the land, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. When's that coming? That's coming when the Lord returns. So what I'm saying is, the possession of the lands that once belonged to Esau, that you see in the hands of Israel today, are very much a sign that Messiah is coming back soon. There you go. It's right in front of your face to read Get ready. Hey, church, your redemption draws nigh. Yes. Amen. Are you in Christ? Are you ready? It's a hard book. I'm hoping that this does two things. Well, more, maybe. I'm hoping that this book challenges us to look within ourselves to make sure we're not like Edom in the way we treat other people when they struggle or when they're down. But I also hope that looking especially at the forward-looking, forward-looking, forward-future-looking, hopeful portion of this, the future, I'm hoping that that causes you to look strong and constantly at Jesus and find your guiding light and your guiding knowledge and your guiding strength from Him. As you look at Him, trust in Him, Follow Him. Serve Him. Look where it's going. I don't have time to read it, but you already know because I read it from Amos last week. He refers to the fact that in that kingdom is not just Jews, but Gentiles who fear the Lord. Turn to Jesus, and this future fate that is so beautifully described is yours as well. And that's God's word through Obadiah. Stand up. After I close us in prayer, if uh, some helpers could go downstairs and help out getting tables and chairs set up for the dinner tonight, that would be great. Everyone else maybe kind of steer clear so they have room to, uh, to work down there. You go home, you get yourself ready, you come back, come back a little early and... We'll have a nice dinner together tonight, and hopefully have a chance to share the gospel with some visitors. It's all good, right? Pray. Take the time to pray, and be ready. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the words of this prophet. It's probably I could probably preach through it again and say it entirely different. There's so much to say, but Lord, I thank you for helping us to go through it today, and help us to receive the challenges and to receive the blessings that are in that writing. Thank you for your word, which is life to us who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that all of the events of this day would glorify and honor you. And we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.